All right. So we are, again, Psalm 24. So, yes. Yep, I was just going to ask that. So anyone that was not here last week would need one. So this is the same from last week, though. So if you need one, let me know. You can at least look off if you want. So I'll give you guys one. Did you say you did need one? Okay. Nope, you're fine. You're good. Nope, I think we're good. Oh, Deanna. Yep. You got your, yeah, you got yours. Yep. I got plenty. You can't. Well, I guess you could write in your Bible. That's true. If you need a clipboard, there are clipboards. Can you give that to Luke, please? Oh, there you go. There you go. All right. So those that were not with us last week, um, or maybe haven't been with us uh, when we've been doing this, is what we're doing. And this is where, again, you're going to be a little bit different tonight because we're not going to give time necessarily to go ahead and mark it up on your own. But obviously, we encourage you to take notes as we go through the lesson. Um, Usually you would have a good five, ten minutes to go ahead and mark up the psalm, make observation, you know, note some things, stuff like that. Because we did this last week and gave you time to do that, uh, we're going to jump into where we left off last week. And so I encourage you to make some, some notes and jot some things down and to circle words, uh, you know, underline words that stand out to you, phrases that would be an encouragement to you or a blessing to you in some way, speak to you in some way. And so, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll move through the psalm. And then when we finish up, we'll just finish up. So verse 3 through 6, I believe, is where we left off, if I marked my notes correctly. So we covered the first couple verses, um, and we covered quite a bit. And so the first real key in those first two verses uh, would be what? Either if you were here with us last week, or just as you're reading over those first couple verses, what really jumps out to you? What would, what would be the main emphasis of those first two verses? How would you summarize it simply? Those first two verses. Okay, I love it. It's all his, right? The earth is the Lord's. We talked about that word fullness, the fullness thereof. That word fullness means entire contents. So everything within the earth is the Lord's, right? Then it talks about they that dwell therein. So all of humanity, so everything and everyone belongs to the Lord's. Every tree, every animal, every human being, Everything belongs to the Lord. It was all created by him and for him, Colossians tells us, right? Created by Christ and for Christ. I, I love the story in the Gospels when Jesus is coming in and they tell, you know, everyone's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they say, hey, silence the crowd. You know, Jesus, tell them to be quiet. And I love what Jesus says. If I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. And so some have, you know, debated that. Where did he literally mean the rock would actually make a sound? Or was Jesus' point, I will be praised. If I silence this crowd, all of creation is already praising me. However you want to look at it, the world declares the glory of the Lord. The stars, we talked about that one week in the psalm. All the stars, the heavens declare the handiwork of the Lord. Not only does he uh, create the world, 
and everything within the world is his, he also laid it in order. He created in order. Verse 2, for he has founded it, so he has laid the foundations of creation, and then also he has established it. And established means in order. He has created it in order. There is an exact order to creation. And so we talked a lot about that. Um, Verse 3, I think we might have spoken to as well. Um, We talked about the... Uh, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place. And then we talked about this idea of that he has clean hands. And we talked about a clean hands, pure heart, um, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully. And we talked about the fact that, that there's a couple ideas here. Maybe the psalmist is speaking to the Levi, or the, the Levites, the priests of Levi, rather, that are coming in with the, the Ark of the Covenant and that they need to be cleansed ceremonially and, and cleansed in their hearts and minds as they're doing this, carrying it in to what will be the temple. Uh, or, speaking in a bigger sense, the Messiah. This is speaking to the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the only one that is perfect with clean hands, a pure heart. No human being has perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure heart. So who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only Christ truly can do that without a covering. We are allowed access to the throne room of God. We are allowed access into the Holy of Holies because of the work of Christ, because of the sin covering that he has given us, taking away our sin and giving us his righteousness. So we're going to reread verses 3 and 4, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 6. So we're going to cover verses 3 through 6. And the idea here is the blessed of the Lord. The blessed of the Lord. So again, I read verse 3. I'll read it again. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Verse 5. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. And I mentioned before, that's kind of a, a reference to a praise song from quite a few years ago, that the idea of let this be the generation that seeks your face. So we used to, when I was first doing youth ministry, uh, we always sang that song. So 2005, 6, 7, and there it was kind of more popular. And I, I love that chorus because the idea is just calling the generation, let's be the generation. Let this be the generation that seeks your face. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, Who is this generation in the psalm? And so we'll unpack that again in a moment as well. So the first thing we have to notice again, while I believe this is specifically referring to Christ, I do believe that through grace and faith, we can be made pure to stand before the Lord. The only way we're made pure to stand before the Lord, the only way we can ascend his holy hill and be allowed into the holy of holies, which is really what happens when we pray, right? When you bow your head in prayer and say, Heavenly Father, you are instantly in his presence. Not because of your good works, not because you've cleansed your hands enough, but because of Christ and Christ alone. And what holier place is there than before the very throne of God? It is the most holy place we can imagine. And so we are ushered in through that. Remember again, it's not our righteousness in which we stand, but it is his. We cannot completely purify our hands or our emotions. Clean hands refers to actions, what we do. Pure hearts refers to our emotions, our motives, our desires, those things. Since we cannot cleanse those things completely, we need someone on the outside to cleanse us, to wash us and renew us. And that's what Christ does for us. However, 
What do we need to do as followers of Christ once we've received Christ in regards to that cleansing that we, we need? How do I receive cleansing from the Lord as a follower of Christ? Do I need to be cleansed? Yeah. We talked about this actually in our men's Bible study this a couple of weeks ago. That, that repentance is the life of the believer. And in our men's Bible study, the question was asked the first week. They said, when you think of the word repentance, what comes to mind? And it was interesting. We went around the room of all the guys. Most of the guys, myself included, said salvation. Usually when you think repentance, you think salvation. You think, okay, I repent of my sins and I receive Christ as my Savior. That's what a lot of people, their first thought is salvation because that's the first time we truly repent, right? Before salvation, we don't really repent. We regret. There's a big difference between regret and repent. Regret is I feel bad for doing something and hurting someone else's feelings or doing something wrong. Repentance is I've offended the God of all creation. I'm a sinner and I'm desperately in need of his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy. I turn from that sin and I turn to Christ. So yes, does repentance involve a level of feeling bad for something? Sure, we all feel bad for what we've done if we realize it's sinful. But regret is a human thing. Repentance is now we're dealing in the, in the heavenlies, in the divine, if you will. That's kind of, for me, how always kind of helped me understand the difference there. We should regret what we do, but we must repent for what we've done. That, that's the difference there. But as we see in 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, right? We have been cleansed in all of our sin. We've been completely forgiven. But what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Written to believers. Written to the church, John says. All of us need daily hand washing. We need daily heart washing. You've been saved. You are saved. You are redeemed and forgiven and free. But every day we live in this world, we pick up worldly daily dirt. And we need to wash our hands daily. And again, this involves a life of repentance. Repentance is not only the act of initial admitting and turning from our sin when we are saved, it is a continuous life of growth and turning from self to Christ by his grace. It is at its core a positive posture in the Christian life. This is one thing that the men's Bible study we've been, we unpacked again this last week as we moved into the second week of our study. But this is one of the cool things that I hadn't really thought of in a sense like what they were saying, that we always think of repentance as a bad thing. That repentance is negative, right? I did something wrong. I need to ask God for forgiveness. That's, that strikes us as a negative. It's a bad thing. But in the Bible study, it was pointing out that actually, according to Romans, that repentance is a result of his loving kindness, his grace and his mercy. It's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. So yes, repentance for something we've sinned and done wrong, there should be a level of, okay, I don't feel good about this. But the act of repentance is a positive thing. It's a positive posture. And actually, throughout church history, we even unpacked it this last week. Even in Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, the first line basically tells us the Christian life is a life of repentance. That we must be repentant as followers of Christ. And so here, when we see this idea of clean hands, clean heart, right? Not lifted up their soul to vanity and swore deceitfully. This idea is that, listen, when we follow Christ, we receive Christ we are saved, but we need to live in a life of repentance because every day that we grow in repentance, we're growing in Christ. 
And I, I just, that really struck me this last couple of weeks in Bible study. I'd always thought of repentance as, as something we do to turn from sin and turn to God, and we all need to do that. But to think of it as a positive posture in the Christian life and a daily need for all believers, that's where I feel that we all can grow in that area. So, uh, any other comments or thoughts on that before we move into this idea of who is the generation that's being referred to in verse 6? Any other comments or thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree a thousand percent. Yeah. When we pick up our cross, we are acknowledging death of self, right? And desiring to live as Christ, right? Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that idea? This idea of a lifestyle of repentance. I think some Christians live this way. I think a lot of us as believers, I know I have for a long time, we don't really think of it that way. We wait until we fall into something and then we repent. But I love what one of the guys said in the Bible study, and then I'll move on. Um, he said, you know, it's not the big things that I, I don't get this with. It's the daily things. It's when your attitude shifts from Christ-centered thinking to apathy. When your attitude moves from self to Christ or Christ to self. Those are those little moments where it's like, hey, in my mindset, I need to repent. In my attitudes, I need to repent. When I have that little thought of, bitterness or envy, before it ever becomes a word, before it ever becomes an action, I need to take that moment and say, Lord, I repent of this. And I, I don't know about you, but I think if I could develop that habit of repenting for things before they ever leave my mouth or, or demonstrate with my hands, we'd be in a lot better position. I would be in a lot better position as a follower of Christ. But that's the point of growth, right? We should be growing in this regard towards this goal. So who is the generation referred to in verse 6? We read there this generation. This is the generation. So you might be tempted to think, well, is this referring to the generation that's currently taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem? If it's written in David's time or if it's written in Solomon's time, is this the group that's taking the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, into the Holy of Holies once the temple's been established? In reality, we don't exactly know. It could be that. It could be in direct context referring to this specific group. But really what we do know is that this is generation, this is a generation rather, that longs to be pure in life and heart before the Lord. So who is this generation referred to in verse 6? It is those who desire to have clean hands, a clean heart, because those are the ones that will receive a blessing from the Lord, the righteousness of God, through his salvation, his deliverance, that generation then can be at any point in any time in human history. Whatever group of people say, I desire this, I'm longing for this, I'm seeking this, and God, you, through Christ for the New Testament believer, or in the Old Testament, seeking him through his word, they can be that generation to worship him and praise him. What is the idea here at the end of verse 4? What does it mean to lift up your soul unto vanity and those who have sworn deceitfully. Now, deceitfully, we understand that. That's just any kind of a impure, right, motive. Sworn deceitfully. I say one thing and do another. I have deceit, right? But this word idea, this lifted up his soul unto vanity. I don't know if you have a different translation or maybe somebody looked into that this week. Maybe something else came to your mind. What do you, what do you think of when you think about that? Have lifted up his soul unto vanity. Go ahead, Sandra. Okay, could be, yep. What did you say? Pride. 
Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. 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 No, that's great. Yeah. Very similar to the Ecclesiastes mindset. Yep. Any other thoughts on that? What does it mean or look like to lift up one's soul into vanity? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Because deceitful and vanity are, are mixed together in the psalm, right? So there's a, there's a commonality here. Now, we think vanity, we tend to think of image, right? Like, and that's kind of what I, what I got from what Renee was saying. Putting out there, I'm this, but I'm really behind the scenes, I'm this. I'm showing that I'm this, but I'm really this. Again, you can make people think you have clean hands and a pure heart all day long. Right? Like, I can make you think that, but you don't know my heart like God does. So, again, that's where it's, yes, very much so, making, putting an image out here to impress, right, or to, to get ahead, but really behind the scenes, it's not that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the Pharisees, who push the law onto some, but yet behind the scenes don't even keep the law themselves, Right? Hey, Jesus, your disciples are, you know, not washing their hands before they eat. What's up with that? And he's like, okay, let's talk about this. And he goes off about all the things they're not doing right, right? You're shutting your parents away and saying, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's for God. But you're disregarding honor thy mother and father. But you want to call my guys out because they're picking some grain on the Sabbath day. So, again, it's just, it's one of those things that we want to seem like we've got all this. But really, behind the scenes, there's no purity of motives or actions. The word vanity really just means emptiness, right? There's emptiness there. There's no substance to it. That's why the Bible says, take not the Lord's name in vain, right? Because to take the Lord's name in vain means to take it with emptiness, no substance. You're not giving it, this is why we'll talk about a little bit here too, the idea of glory is the opposite of vanity. Glory actually has the idea of weight given. Vanity has no weight. It's just, it's fluff. There's nothing there, okay? And so to me, this is saying that the, the deceit and the vanity relate to any idol of any kind. When I lift up my soul to any idol of any kind, that's what the psalmist is saying here. The generation that does not do that and seeks the face of, of, the, of the God of Jacob is the generation that is not lifting up their soul to an idol, so that could be pride, that could be image, that could be living for the things of the world that really don't fulfill. This generation is not limited to a timeline, but exists in any age where the saints of God rejoice in him and walk in him. So we can see, and I believe we're a part of that generation, a generation that seeks him and seeks thy face. Now that's an interesting play on that, that phrasing. It talks about seeking him and seeking his face. So just curious, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, as far as maybe you've read through that this week or you've just as you're reading through it now. Why do you think the psalmist says specifically, this is a generation of them that seek him, being God, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Why do we talk about seeking him and seeking his face? Why do you think the psalmist words it that way? I don't know how to put it into words other than like, to me, like when you're seeking a person, like him, you're like after that person. 
Okay. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. And then he's all shiny for who knows how long. Right. Yeah. And that's just got the backside. So, I mean, to think about actually seeing his face one day and that we would be able to even see his face. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Communication, right? Closeness. Julie? When I read it, those that seek him really want to know that there is a God. Mm -hmm. And that we can seek your face to understand God better, to understand his character, to understand who he is. Yeah. Just to understand the glory of God. Okay. That he is the creator that's his real and knowledge. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, and you just touched on something that I think is important in the psalm. How does the psalm start? What's our view of God at that point? Big, big picture. All of this is yours. So we acknowledge you as creator, right? As, as wise, because you've laid it on a foundation. You've given it order, right? You're holy because not anyone can just come into your holy mountain and your holy temple. So you're a creator, you're wise, you're holy, and so we're starting to transition from just a general picture of who God is as creator to we get to verse 4, and now it's, or not verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 6. And now it's, I don't want to just seek you, I want to know you. And I love that you made that connection there. That it's, this face-to-face is intimacy. So when I read that, I read of intimacy. That we're face-to-face with God. And I heard someone say that when we pray, the idea of the prayer is face-to-face communication. That when you go into the throne room of God, you're not brought in as a pulper and you're on the floor hoping he'll give you 30 seconds of his time. And you're terrified to be in his presence. We are fearful of God, but we come in boldly. Why? Because we're in Christ. And when we come in, we are eye-to-eye with the king. Not arrogant, not boasting in ourselves, but we're eye to eye in the king because we're covered in the blood of Christ. And he says, as my son, I want you to come talk to me face to face. And so I I do see a level of intimacy growing between the generation that's seeking him, seeking his face. They recognize him as creator. They see him as holy and it's all one. Notice the holiness of God doesn't diminish the closer we get to God in relationship. We said this back at the bonfire, that, that we like to say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a slave of God because I'm his friend. He said I'm his friend. Well, that's fine. We are his friend, but we're also his servant. And if you're friends with the king, he's still the king. He doesn't lose his authority over us because we're closer in relationship with him. And so we submit to him as a friend, yes, as our father, but also as our Lord and master. And so here again, you see that going through the psalm. Uh, so again, let's move on. Verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10. So here we see the idea of the king of glory. The king of glory. And so we've talked about this a little bit last week. Um, that that is a very famous praise song. Um, that third day put out um, last week. And Avi sang it for us very well. Um, I wasn't going to say it. Then you laughed. I was like, I got I to gotta say it. I got to bring it up. Um, 
But it's a, such an amazing phrase. It's such an amazing phrase. And so let's go ahead and we'll read through verses 7 through 10, and then we'll unpack it together. And if you want to bracket 7 through 10, it kind of stands a little bit separate from the rest of the psalm as far as how it repeats. So it's interesting how it repeats here at the end of the psalm. So verse 7. Uh, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So if you're taking notes and you're circling things, as I keep reading here in a minute, um, I would definitely circle every time you see the phrase King of glory, um, descriptions of that King of glory. Uh, It's said in verse 8, he is strong and mighty. So it says the Lord mighty in battle. So I would, be, I would circle those. Verse 9. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? So we see those phrases again. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. So amazing, amazing way that the psalmist ends Psalm 24. So five times we see the phrase king of glory. There is a repetition here at the end of, of the psalm with a question answer format. Who is this king of glory? Let me tell you who he is. Who is this king of glory? I'll tell you who he is. And so there's this kind of repetition there. The question is simply this. Who is the king of glory? The Hebrew word translated glory, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, in Psalm 24 is the Hebrew word kabod. K-A-B-O-D. Obviously, that's not, you know, that's the transliteration of it, not the actual Hebrew word, uh, which means weight. So the word for glory in Psalm 24 literally means weight. Okay? As in something that weighs something. But it is, but it is used figuratively. Okay? As in his argument carries weight. So it's being used figuratively, not literally referring to something with poundage, but it's meaning there's, there's substance. There's something here, like in the phrase, his argument carries weight, or the content of that book is weighty. People will say that. The content of this book is weighty. They don't mean literally physical weight. They mean what? It's deep. It's, it's, there's a lot there to unpack, okay? Um, Kabod carries a, a, a connotation of this idea of power, power. There's power behind this weight. Calling God the king of glory means he is the most awesome, most powerful king and should be taken seriously. Now again, this goes all the way back to verse one. Why should God be taken seriously? Because he is the creator. Because this is all his. Because he is holy. He is wise. Jesus is actually called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2.8. And so again, we already see this connection as New Testament believers between the King of glory, the Lord of glory. Uh, the entrance into Jerusalem, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, they were shouting praise. Uh, they were crying out in Matthew 21 that this is the Lord of glory. This is the King that's come in. And so again, this could be seen as a fulfillment of Psalm 24, as a fulfillment of Psalm 24, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and he crossed into those gates and people were shouting praises 
We see that connected here. Lift up your heads, verse 7, O ye gates, and be lifted up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. So the idea is that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that he entered the city and people were shouting praises, some believe that's a fulfillment of Psalm 24, that the King of glory is coming in to the city. And again, now let's remember, what is the exact context of this? Most likely when the Ark of the Covenant is either being brought into Jerusalem or brought to the temple. Still the same idea. It's, it's to me, it's the presence of God coming into the city. And that's what we see happening when Jesus enters in. Something to note, however, is the gates of Jerusalem are addressed twice. The gates of Jerusalem in Psalm 24 are addressed twice. When Jesus, the King of glory, entered the city on Palm Sunday, the whole city did not receive him. The whole city did not receive him. Now, tradition tells us that this psalm is actually sang and was actually sang um, every Sunday morning in worship. Every Sunday in worship, they would sing Psalm 24. And so think about it for a moment. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, that morning they would have gathered and sang this psalm. And the very day that they're singing this psalm again, who knows for how many times, the king of glory is literally coming into the city, fulfilling the thing they just sang about that morning. And as I said it this morning with John chapter 7, there's so many times in Scripture where Jesus was standing within feet of a celebration or a feast or something taking place that pointed completely to him and the crowd worshipped and praised and didn't even acknowledge that Jesus was in the room, standing right in their midst. To the point where Jesus had to, in John 7, shout over the situation. Shout over the commotion. This is about me. So think about that for a moment. These Jewish believers, or these Jewish individuals, gathered that morning, began to sing this song. And that afternoon, Jesus literally entered, the King of Glory entered the city. So again, they sang the song and never even realized it applied to Jesus of Nazareth. So, again, that goes back to the question, why are the gates mentioned twice? We know Jesus entered into the city as the king of glory. Does he leave in their eyes as the king of glory? No, he left as one that was going to be killed on a cross. So, what some believe is that when Jesus returns in his second coming and enters Jerusalem, his people will receive him and the Lord of glory shall be king over all the earth. Zechariah 14, 9. You can jot that reference down. Zechariah 14, 9. So again, we see the first entrance. Maybe that's what the psalm is referring to as far as prophetically. But then we see again this idea of him returning a second time and entering back into the city. We also see here the personification of the gates and the doors. We talked about this. This is common in uh, Psalm and Proverbs. We'll see wisdom and inanimate objects given, uh, referred to as him or her, or doing something that a gate can't do. A gate can't lift up its head. So the psalmist is trying to get us to think about the gates opening up greater, rising up in a higher way. And so the question we have to ask is, why then would the gates need to be larger or these ancient doors larger if all they're doing is bringing in the Ark of the Covenant? Because the Ark would fit fine. One author says this about this passage. The psalmist speaks to the gates and the ancient doors, calling them to attention and commanding them to be lifted up or raised to admit the king of glory. 
However lofty these ancient doors are, they must be loftier still to admit such an august presence in the Lord himself. Obviously, in the context, the gates, again, are wide enough physically for the Levites to carry the ark in. This reference refers to the coming of the King of glory, Christ himself. And so such a powerful reminder that he is the King of glory, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And I think if you ask people to describe Jesus, they would use a lot of words, some of them very biblical words. I don't know too many, especially outside the church, that would refer to Jesus as mighty in battle. Because we don't think of Jesus as mighty in battle. We think of Jesus as very timid, right? Very docile, more of a peacemaker. And we know that when he came the first time, he did not come to wage war. Not physical war anyway, but he came to wage spiritual war. But when he returns the second time, we will not stand back and think of him as weak or docile. This is when we will cry out, you are mighty in battle. And when you read the Old Testament, you're going to see time and again. We're just starting Joshua this morning. You're going to see time and again about how God is a God of battle. Now, we have a hard time with that, but that's, that's wrong. We shouldn't, you know, God shouldn't be for killing people. Remember, God is not killing people like we understand that to happen. God is the owner of all of creation. It's all in his command. And if God so chooses to exercise judgment and take someone's life as an act of judgment— only God can do that and always be righteous and just in doing so. This is why if you have a problem with Noah's Ark and literally the entire world being flooded and all of those people being drowned, you have a hard time with that because that's unfair. That's not loving. How could God do that? You are not seeing the God of the Bible. You are thinking of the God that you've created in your own mind. Because the God of the Bible is the God of all of creation who owns everything therein and therefore is only the only one that can execute judgment rightly on all of creation at any time he chooses. So when we understand who the king of glory is in Psalm 24, remember that was the question, who is this king of glory? Who is this person? When we understand the answer to that question, we will live in the peace and provision of Psalm 23. So I mentioned this psalm follows one of the most famous psalms, right? Psalm 23. But I think when you read Psalm 23 and then you read Psalm 24, when you realize he is the king of glory and you realize all that he is and that everything is his and he is the Lord of creation, then you go back and I encourage you to do this. Go back and reread Psalm 23 and you realize that's why I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not be afraid. That's why I can lay down by the waters and rest in his presence. That's why I don't fear what anyone would do to me. That's why I know all my needs are met in him because he is the Lord, the King of glory. When we truly believe the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we will rest in green pastures and not fear walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And so I want to encourage you guys this week sometime, go back and reread Psalm 23, but read it through the lens of Psalm 24 and think about who's being spoken of there as the shepherd that we're submitting to. And so I pray this has been an encouragement to you guys. I pray it's been an, an encouragement to your walk. Um, I do want to end. If there's anyone that has any comments, questions, or thoughts, we'll give a few minutes for that. Obviously, we have some time. So I'm, I'd be fine to open it up if anyone has any comments, questions, or thoughts. Yes, ma'am? No, yeah, you're fine. No, you're fine. Yeah. 
Yes. So, yeah, sacrifice, yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. What an awesome thought. That's that's so great. Yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely. It, and it's it, it's easy for us to look back and say how they miss it, but like you just said, for the grace of God, we were all blind to the reality of who Jesus is and was. And so, yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Any comments, questions, or thoughts? Anything in addition to you? Or yes, ma'am. No, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah, yeah. So, so what really led to me doing a study through Joshua was um, I'd just been reading through my own personal morning reading. And so as I was getting to the end of that and then I moved into Judges just to kind of reread that again, um, it was kind of like the Lord was like, hey, I, th- I want you to do a series on this. And I thought, well, okay, I mean, I can't, I have no idea what I'm going to do, like how we're going to do it. Um, but when I got to those chapters. Um, and it was a little tough at times, but I, what I usually tend to do is, um, I do it chapter by chapter every morning. And then I just have a little simple notebook. And so I try to go into it with, okay, Lord, show me something in this chapter. Don't let me just glaze over it. Don't let me just read it to read it. There's gotta be something here that I've, I've never really noticed before. So just, just make me aware of this. So I tried very hard to go in it with intention, um, and then just read it slowly and just try to pay attention to it. Um, but there are, I mean, those chapters are very monotonous. And you may read through two or three of them and go, I didn't really see anything in that. But that's where we just need, for nothing else, we're consuming the Word of God for whatever reason, maybe down the road or whatever, he's going to use it. But for me, when I was going through all the inheritance, um, that's where it struck me that I'd never noticed before that Caleb was first and Joshua was last. And I know I probably read that a dozen times, but I never caught that the two men that were the only ones that had true faith, Caleb began the inheritance, Joshua ended that time of inheritance. And that Joshua was okay with being last. That didn't bother Joshua. And so had I just skipped over those chapters of inheritance, I just never would have really caught that again. So I think that just helped me to kind of think, okay, they're, they're, I need to be intentional with this. I need to put thought into this. So I would just say take it one chapter at a time and, and maybe jot down anything that jumps out to you. But it's just really... The only thing I say is just push, just in a sense, push through. Just just read it and, and give time to it. That's what I would encourage. So, but it can be tough. Uh, a lot of times the Old Testament can be that way sometimes. Anyone else? Comments, questions, or thoughts? All right. Well, we'll go ahead and pray. And we'll let you guys be dismissed. Let the students get about their event tonight. And so let's pray. And ask the Lord to be with us this evening and the rest of this week. Father, I pray, Lord, that as was challenged to us here uh, last Sunday by uh, Mike Van Bruggen, 
Lord, that we would not read and study your word for just knowledge of your word, uh, but that we would see it applied to our lives in practical, everyday ways. Because, Father, when we study your word and we read your word, it's not just to keep in our minds, but it's to affect our hearts, it's to affect our hands, it's to affect our words, it's to affect how we interact with other people, with other people, Lord, how we speak to them, how we, Lord, how we plan our day, how we see our, our day, a schedule. And so, Lord, I pray that, again, this was challenged to us as a church, that we would allow you, by the working of your Spirit, to apply this word to our hearts and minds and let it be lived out in our lives. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that because you are the King of glory, because you are worthy of all praise, you are the one that is perfect and can stand in the Holy of Holies. And because of your sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross, burial and resurrection, we can now stand in the very Holy of Holies. And when we realize that this is all yours, that you are the Lord of the earth, like everything here is yours. You are over all things. Lord, we understand that. How can we not do what Psalm 23 says and just go to our shepherd and know that all our needs are met? Father, I know that this world every single day tries to distract and throw us off. And Lord, there's so many that fear and worry about this or that thing, whether it be inflation or the price of this or who's getting elected there or what's going on here. Uh, Lord, I think when we get as Christians, as followers of Christ, when we let those things consume us, we have forgotten that you are the king of glory. We, are forgo- we have forgotten that the fullness of all of this, the entire contents of all of this belong to you. And we're not called to do anything other than trust you and serve you right where you've planted us for your glory, for your purposes. But I know, Lord, there's a lot of believers that aren't living that way. I feel like in the last 10 years, Lord, there's so much fear, animosity. Lord, I'm sure it's always been there, but it just seems it's just growing, even among the church. And Lord, what a horrible testimony for us as believers to be driven with fear of the world when we serve the Lord of all creation. The world should look to the church and say, why are you so at peace? Why are you so full of joy in the midst of all of this? Why is it that everyone else at my workplace is freaking out? But these Christians, they don't seem to really be panicking. Lord, we can be concerned and show concern and obviously pray and, and do our part to interact and affect positive change in our world and to Lord, vote in our country where we've been given that freedom. Lord, we we can do these things and we can speak out against wrong and evil. But Lord, I pray that in doing those things, we would not for one second forget who you are. That this is yours. And we're just called to serve as we can for your glory. So Father, again, thank you for being the king of glory. Thank Thank you for being one that we can look to in all seasons at any time. And Lord, I pray that you'd help every single one of us to go from this place, Lord, desiring to live a life of repentance, a life where every single day we acknowledge we need your grace, we need your mercy. We cannot go one moment of one day without it. And Lord, I know that that seems like a negative, but Lord, it's, it's so good to trust in the loving kindness and the grace and the mercy of our God that draws us to repentance, fills us with your presence, and allows us to go forth into this world to make disciples and evangelize and to share Christ. And so, Lord, again, we praise you for your word and how it speaks to us. May you be glorified in all of this and bring us back on Wednesday, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.